Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I am John Birdsall. You sound like you're really chipper there, sir. I'm chipper. I am just wow. in a very chipper mood. Not a wood chipper. Not no, like no, 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 no. Okay. No. All right. Just checking. Like, that reminds me of Fargo. Wasn't that <laughs> Coen Brothers movie? We were just talking about that the other day, weren't we? Uh-huh. Yep. yep. Not the wood chipper part, but just. No, no, no. But the, uh, well, any Coen Brothers movie is amazing. So yeah, that's, that's the general so, hey, rule. I've got a little story for you. You know, this is tomato season. All of my homegrown tomatoes are, you know, really in full production. And. I yesterday evening, I, I picked one and I was going to take it in the house and it was a beautiful purple Cherokee, very large, very ripe, just like a pristine tomato, like state fair prize worthy. And I set it on this little table that I have outside. That's about, you know, three feet off, uh, two and a half feet, three feet off the ground. And I went to go do something else and I turned around and it was gone. And my dog blue, whom, whom, you know, he, uh, my best guess is that he purloined the tomato and, and ran off with it. Uh, this year I've had a unique, uh, garden pest named my dog. Uh, (laughs) did you explain to blue the rules (laughs) of the house and the, um, the ban on uh, purloining? I, I did. I explained okay. it in. Did he put his I, paw print on? I to did put it in writing, receipt? and yes, his paw print was on there. So I'm in, initiating an injunction hearing um, against him. So anyway, okay. well, it sounds like you have it well in hand. So that's good. I do, I do. <laughs> hey, a couple things that you know. I, I know we've had a busy week this week. We've had all kinds of court hearings. I know that you had a big trial that was going on, and I had a bunch of very significant hearings traveling all over the state, but I did catch a couple things in the news that were very interesting. Uh, One of them was the fact that mayor Tom Barrett, I believe has been appointed to be Mm -hmm. the ambassador to Luxembourg. Did I get that right? You did. And that is um, a classic in the sense of a long time Dem who, um, gets a like a kind of a plum post. Yes, at the end of his career, right? I mean, and I would love to be the ambassador to Luxembourg. I mean, what do you do? You kind of like, I mean, meet that's, and greet, that's, you that's, smile, that's, you eat good food, and cocktail parties. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, first of all, is that effective immediately? Is that starting? I, I don't even know. I, I think that it's something that doesn't that have to go through a you know a kind of a mini confirmation. Yeah, that's a Senate-confirmed position. But um, um, more to the point is what happens back home, because I think there's a bunch of people already jumping into what's now a wide-open mayoral race in Milwaukee, the city of Milwaukee. And, um, uh, and, you know, how that plays out, I don't know. But um, he's been mayor for, I don't know, 20 years? Very long time. Yeah. Very long time. And... I think that, and I don't know this for a fact because I'm not a political, you know, um, analyst or anything. But yes, you are. Stop. I think I th- I think he kind of like um, saw the writing on the walls as far as um, probably was going to meet a serious challenge where he'd never really had a serious challenge before. Mm-hmm. Uh, partly because Milwaukee still has a lot of the same problems, 
that they've that we've had since you know for the last fifty years, but certainly during his long tenure that he hasn't moved the needle at all. Um, and maybe it's beyond his ability to move the needle. It's you know it's bigger forces than just you know one single politician. But um, I think I think there might be some grumblings um, about you know the lack of progress, uh, particularly for minority communities in the city. And um, well, and this is just utter speculation on my part. But you know, living here and. And, and knowing the, the 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 stark racial division lines that we have here, and how they're kind of cemented in, and you know, how do you break that out? You know, it's like a lot of it has to do with real estate developers. You know, yeah, but I think it also has a lot to do with things that are beyond his control, such as the presence of the FBI and ATF that in you know that concentrate their efforts on certain communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm oh, sure abso- that. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, if you look at the investment in Milwaukee, it's, it's, you know, like Milwaukee's downtown is about a nice, as nice a downtown area as you could ever want in a city, right? I love it's, it. Yeah. It's, it's clean. It's, you know, it's the buildings going up all over the place. I mean, like significant buildings. They're the homeless this- people are well hidden, you know. <laughs> well, there's there's definitely a homeless problem in Milwaukee, but um, they aren't like just you know they aren't laying on every downtown street like they are in Denver, for example. But um, uh, but then if you just go literally less than a mile away from the downtown epicenter into the north side or the south side, um, you'll you'll see you you can just see and feel the utter lack of investment mm-hmm. in those communities and um, uh, and whether that's you know, trying to attract businesses there or trying to pave the streets a little better or whatever. I mean, um, you can, you can just see, um, you know, a former Milwaukee cause those all used to be white neighborhoods and then there's white flight and, you know, this whole thing. And so it's, so the ability to attract investment in those communities, um, is going to be, uh, significant. And actually this raised this, this actually, that announcement raised a question in my mind is like about segregation and segregated cities. Cause Milwaukee, as you know, is the most segregated city in the United States mm-hmm. racially. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, I heard an interesting discussion that it's the, and that popped in my head when I, when I, when I thought about this Barrett leaving and that is, is, is desegregation even a possibility? And is it something that everybody even wants, like even members of the black community? Or do they just want to reinvigorate their specific areas and not try and integrate into the suburbs? Or Very interesting question, because I think you remember. You remember. You're roughly the same age I am. You're going to bring up busing, yes. Yes, I was going to bring up busing. How did you know? Okay. Because (laughs) I know you so well, that's why. Oh, that's Um, it, yeah. (laughs) But, uh, and... Uh, but there was also a very fascinating study. Um, uh, it was really more of an expose in the New York Times a number of years ago about about a number of uh, black families that had been living in white suburban communities in Milwaukee that decided to move back because they felt so unwelcome in those other communities. They decided mm-hmm. to move back into their old neighborhoods. And, and so, you know, maybe... The the desegregation chip is just 
destined to never sail? It's I don't know. Interesting, it's an interesting question because I know that, you know, part of, you know, what I've learned personally as a middle-aged white male over the past several years is that, you know, this whole, uh, many people, many liberal people have sort of a paternalistic view on, you know, how seg- that's segregation should work, you know, sort of like, hey, you know, you can be part of our white success, you know, welcome aboard type thing. And, and, and it kind of has the effect of erasing the uniqueness and the identity of, uh, you know, a, a very um, exclusively American part of our country, because, you know, historically, um, these are people that can normally only trace their roots back to when slavery existed, you know, to, to a large extent, not exclusively, of course, but, but, um, you know, I, I've kind of rethought that whole process. I think that's how I was raised and you were raised as to sort of, you know, look at, look at minorities as though, you know, we want them to be more like white people. I just, I remember thinking that as a kid, like that's, that's well, what everybody's it, it trying was the to same do. attitude that they had with American Indians. And, um, and if you recall, there was a number of um, schools established Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Um, and I think there was one or two others uh, that were Indian schools. That's what they were called. And, and so they would bring all these children in and, you know, dress them in white clothes, teach them English, take them to church, you know, and, 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 you know, um, make them adopt white culture and forget their old culture. And which is a trench. And and the, and the, the point I think here is that that was done by people who thought they were doing something super progressive and helpful. Mm hmm. And it wasn't done by people that were like trying to just, you know, um, (laughs) uh, like be mean or whatever. Um, And, and I always thought that was a curious attitude, you know? Um, Well, I want you to hold that thought because we do have to take a break right now to make room for our commercial sponsors to step in and say something. Got it. We'll be right back. And we're back. We made more legal defense. No, I can never do that. I'm, I'm just going to You're stop not as talking. good as I am. The, the announcer voice. Or the announcer. They, I mean, we just heard the announcer say, I know, but do. So we were talking about when we left, we were talking about um, uh, kind of a paternalistic attitude towards, um, you know, minority communities. You know, and you had was- mentioned, you used the word American Indian. And it's, you know, I know that that's a term that we don't necessarily like anymore but again i think it's mostly the white people <laughs> that say oh we should well i use that just because that was literally the legal uh, yeah i was going to point that out especially in federal jurisdiction i mean you've had these cases i've had these cases uh if it's a re- you know we call them reservation cases one of the elements they have to prove in order to get subject matter jurisdiction over the defendant is they have to prove you know one of the elements is that the defendant is an indian i mean it's it's written that way in mm-hmm. federal yeah. law I mean, that's well, still you know, on the books. That that's and we still have the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Right. In fact, that agency was one of the, you know, big, I guess, you know, really sticking points between uh, like in the 1800s and, 
as as that century rolled on and um you know there was greater advancement westward and we were, the united states was gobbling up um big parcels of land um from the indian tribes and then you know uh, it was you know it was, this happened all over i'm currently reading trail of tears which is about the cherokees down in georgia and oh, um wow. yeah. right, there's other there's other areas of of the continent that this went on in um, out in the plains and down in the Southwest too. Um, it was kind of a universal thing. And so Indian was just a unique and um, uh, universally applied. Um, and you know, what's ironic uh, about that is that if name. I recall correctly, the, the, the term was put into use by some European kind of stupid explorer that thought it was India. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I found so, India. So the oh, people no. from actually India, uh, <laughs> you know, they probably, you know, bristle a little bit at that, that, but, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, well, actually today now, I think, you know, the more common vernacular would be to call somebody from India, Indian and somebody that's, um, and, a, a American native American Indian to call them a native American or, well, or native or, or native, an indigenous yeah. person or yeah. whatever. I mean, um, what are, what do they refer to um, in Australia? It's the, the, the Aboriginals. Aboriginals. Yeah, Aboriginals. Yes. And so, um, I guess the point is, is that that was sort of like this this um, just convenient legal moniker to cast over an entire people of really widely. I mean, if you really study um, a lot of the old. Um, tribal nations, mm. um, they were wildly different in many, many mm -hmm. ways, you know, and the only thing, the, the one thing they had in common was they were here first. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which it. actually, you know, as a legal matter, I actually heard a fascinating discussion on a podcast. And as you know, I'm like a podcast nerd. So um, uh, a lot of legal podcasts and, and it was all about what um, constitutes uh, property and possession and um, and so he talked a lot about like little things, like um, the space between um, uh, the, the 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 back of the seat on an airplane and and you sitting in front of it, and the ability of this guy to dec to, to decline his seat. Who owns <laughs> that space? I mean, he was analyzing Ooh, exactly that and all sorts of like everyday little things like that. And it was a fascinating discussion, but one of the things he brought if you, up. If you're the person that's getting reclined onto, can you say, you're encroaching in my personal cone? You absolutely can say that. And, and it's a very debatable question about who owns that. And um, uh, <laughs> so it's a whole thing. But, the, but as part of that discussion, you know. Yeah, you really need to get a, a life, he, dude. If by the way, he wrote a book. That's where your brain goes. Go ahead. He wrote a book called Mine exclamation point and it's all about like possessions nine-tenths of the law and this is like two-year-olds it's mine it's mine it's mine right and who who owns what and and in a lot of early cases involving land disputes between um tribal nations or white settlers were often um settled uh not even by you know like military conquest but by courts who said all right well whoever was the first to do something gets the land so mm -hmm. the first one to clear it 
the first one to dam a river, the first one to um, make use uh, of it in some way that that represents possession. Yeah. You know, and so, and of course, you know, even though the natives had already done a lot of that, um, they, they, they lost as well. The difference is they, they didn't have steam engines, uh, guns, uh, government buildings, um, or any kind of law that was recognized in the, uh, con- in the continental sense and, you know, in Europe. Yeah. So yeah, kind of led to a lot, you know. We, well, we went, we we went a long way from because we went a long way from the 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 mayoral race in Milwaukee to yeah, that was quite a American land rights there. <laughs> but uh, but um, um, it'll be interesting to see how that how that race for mayor plays out. I I can think of a couple of people I would like to see run, but mm-hmm. um, but at the end of the day. I know who you mean. We should just probably keep that to ourselves. Yeah, but we are. But um, at the end of the day, it's who ends up being the mayor of a large city is, is really kind of irrelevant in a lot of ways because the people who really make the decisions about what affects the city, I mean, the really important decisions are the moneyed developing interests because they, they are the ones that like literally own the land or they have the money, they have the capital to put up developments or they have the banking connections or whatever. Um, yeah, because the city and, doesn't do any of that. You know, the city yeah, and, is a steward for those types of things. But yeah, they well, they give, you know, they'll, they'll have to, you know, they'll, there'll be committees to sign off on this building permit or that and to approve projects. Uh, but to a large extent, um, you know, especially for large projects, those are always encouraged because they bring a lot of economic development. Point is, is that it's those interests, those folks, and I'm not condemning them for you know developing or you know doing in uh, you know doing these projects. I'm just saying they're the ones that are essentially in charge, right? You know? And it has to stem from, like you said, economic development, and sometimes the success of or failure of a mayor is completely dependent on how the economy rises or falls, you know? Yeah. That's but, true. Well, much like a president, right? <laughs> that's true. And, and, you know, and, and Milwaukee for years had redlining just like a lot of major cities did. And redlining is just like putting a red line on a map around certain neighborhoods that say you're not getting mortgage loans. Well, you know, that started in the, in, during the new deal in the 1930s until it was eventually struck down. But, um, uh, but that sort of inability to develop intergener- intergenerational wealth through owning a home, and um, that's what's keeping those areas down. Mm-hmm. And so, what can a mayor do about that? I don't have an answer to that question. You know, right. that's those are those are those are the, those are tides of history that are that are going to wash over anybody. Um, and I don't know how you you know it's like turning a destroyer around, you know, <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't just flip those, those, those don't just, those, they don't turn on a dime, you know, it's hard to do a U-turn in a U-turn on a, with a, uh, air, um, aircraft carrier. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So, um, but anyway, yeah. So, um, there is one other little thing going on in the news. You might've yes. heard of it. Um, I did. it's a little country, uh, they uh, be, um, have been hanging around with for a couple of years. Uh, it may or may not be called Afghanistan in the future. We have to kind of see where that's going, but uh, yeah. Um, 
and so that's another that's another historical thing that it was like you know it's really the debate to me is fascinating it is because on cable news all it is is like you know the right is like oh biden's horrible and he did a horrible job and you know what frankly you know the, 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 it, it is a mess but i think the bigger thing is like everybody is not paying attention to the real problem. And that is, it was always going to be messy getting out of there. And the only alternative was to stay forever. Um, But really the question is, why were we there in the first place? (laughs) Okay. We had a legitimate reason to go into Afghanistan. We're going to go in, we want to get Al Qaeda, weaken mm -hmm. the Taliban and get Osama bin Laden. All right. So, um, but that of course led us into, they kind of flipped the narrative a couple of years in and suddenly we're in Iraq. Yep. All right, right? Uh, time for a break, I'm afraid. But oh, yes, no. you're on a roll, right. so just keep that, keep the okay. juices flowing, and we'll be right back. All right. And we're back with more legal defense. Uh, Mr. Birdsall Esquire was in the middle of a rant, and we had to... Rants are good. Stop they do for a minute so that we could, you know, obviously pay the bills with the commercial sponsors and so forth, but... Um, John, you were you were getting all hopped up about uh, well, uh, no. What, what I was did, did, we, did we ever need to go into Afghanistan to begin with? And I think the point I was driving at was how people conveniently change the narrative constantly. And so, if you remember early on in um, the Afghan war, and then we're in Iraq at the same time, um, people were rightly complaining about why we were there in the first place. And, um, and we suddenly changed from we're fighting terrorism to we're nation building. Right. And, and, and so that flip of, of the purpose um, is the fascinating thing. Cause you know, it's like, it's like, all right, well, the, the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration was trying to, it was that people were criticizing them for their execution of the war when really it was the purpose that needed to be criticized. Well, the, uh, going gotta, in I, in the first place. To need I want to tag team on this rant because this is something that has bothered me all along. Um, and people of course are rightly drawing uh, comparisons to what happened during the Vietnam conflict. And you know, this is, I, I want to remind everybody about the history of Afghanistan. Um, at the time that we, you know, sent troops, it wasn't too long. It, w- it had been not too distant history when the the Afghan fighters had defeated Russia. I mean, or the Soviet Union. I mean, back when that happened, there had been a right. very long war with one of the biggest superpowers in the world. And the Afghan fighters prevailed in that. I mean, so just to think that this is some barren desert with a bunch of guys with homemade guns is is ridiculous. Well, we, we did give them a lot of help in that fight, but well, right, because so a lot of the a lot of the weaponry and stuff was were things that we had provided because we were you know trying to stop the Soviet Union from taking over Afghanistan. But anyway, you know, there's a phrase that comes to mind and. It used to mean one thing, but it's come to mean another. And that is winning the hearts and minds of the people. You remember that phrase being used in Vietnam. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's a police action designed to, you know, with the approval of the United Nations in that particular situation, 
designed to thwart the spread of communism, but it turned into a political nation-building attempt, which never got off the ground because, you know, the whole philosophy was let's win the hearts and minds of the people that live there. And what that meant was let's turn them on to the idea of democracy. Let's, uh, you know, tell them how bad communism is, blah, 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 blah. And it ended up (laughs) just not working. So we ended up abandoning many, many people that were, that ultimately later paid a very hefty price. And that's why we have many uh, refugees that, you know, including from Laos and Thailand and Vietnam that Uh were political, um, you know, targeted as uh, political dissidents and many of them were executed. Uh, You know, we're we're kind of in the same boat here because what were we doing and what was the purpose of it? And I I think you're right. The narrative got shifted in such a way so that it was very, you know, gratuitously, let's let's help our friends who believe in uh, free government and democracy and free speech and human rights and et cetera, um, without a very accurate assessment of the, the strength uh, or legitimacy, I'm not going to say legitimacy, but the strength and survive survivability of the government that was in place. And I, I think much like what happened in Vietnam, you know, except that we kind of planted that government in Vietnam leading up to all of yeah, that. Well, they were, yeah, they were a bit of a puppet regime, but puppet, yeah. puppet regime. And I'm not saying the, the, the Afghan Republic as it were um, was the same thing, but you know, we, we've always known all along that there's a, you know, a faction of, you know, fundamentalist Islamic um, political, you know, leaders that, that come in various forms. I think, you know, the sense I got over the past, I don't know, five or so years was that the, we were treating the Taliban like they weren't necessarily as bad as, say, for example, Al-Qaeda or something else. I mean, I, I heard that kind of shift in tone and I don't know exactly where that came from. But, you know, here's the big problem. It, it, it took some president over the course of the past 20 years to actually have the guts to make the move. Um, Trump talked about doing it. Trump was ver- very much in favor of getting. Well, people this out was of his it. plan. It's basically what one, the one plan I mean, out right now was Trump's plan. Right, right. And, and, you know, I agree that at a certain point, you just can't sacrifice more American lives and a never ending struggle. I mean, what is it going to be Afghanistan or is it going to be a, you know, a 52nd state, you know, 51st state <laughs> in, in well, the union? I mean, I so think, I, and if we never anticipated that, then what are we doing? We're trying to prop up a government with funding, uh, arms, people, you know, 19 year old, 20 year old kids that should be back in the United States doing other stuff but they're going over there to give their lives for something that is not, you know, not necessarily an achievable goal in any sense. Well, so the thing is, the thing is, what was the goal? I don't that, was, that, was, that was not very well defined. And, and I'm not just saying that as a layperson. I'm just telling you what I can quote from any number of military leaders who, so, who are all saying, we don't know why we're there. We haven't yeah. known for decades. Well, it turned into kind of trying to protect and... Uh, train the, the the existing government to run itself. And that never worked. <laughs> it just never worked. I mean, I, I think it was foreseeable and any president that had to make 
this decision over the course of two decades. Well, I mean, it wasn't really something that I think most people came to the realization until remember, remember when it had been going on for like five years and people were like, Oh my God, it's been five years. We need to do something, you know? So then much, much later, someone had to pull the trigger. Now, was it a good idea to broadcast that and say by such and such time, we're going to have everybody out of there. Cause that was basically the go ahead for the Taliban, <laughs> you know, right. to say, okay, right. well on this day, we know there's not going to be any American troops there and we can just overwhelm them and let's get going. You know, that's kind of what happened. Well, the interesting, the interesting part about this war or these wars, I guess, uh, <clears throat> is I just look back at it historically to say, War is a lot less dangerous than it used to be, apparently, because we've been in here. First of all, we've been in there for 20 years, and I think we have like 3,500 dead. Do well, I have that number nothing, right? That's nothing to make light of. But yeah, No, I'm not making light of that. What I'm comparing it to is I'm comparing it to Vietnam where we had 58,000. And then you go back to World War II. I'm not sure what the numbers were in. Um, I think there was a half million in World War II or something close to that. Uh, I don't know about Korea. Um, there was a there was a, a half million between the two sides in the Civil War, um, and uh, you know I and I don't know what that means other than possibly this is that military leaders and political leaders seem to think that the the pain of losing soldiers isn't as great now, so we can hang around longer. Uh, that's a that's a good a point. I wonder if that ever came into the. I, I think that because of the advancement of technology and the ability to conduct warfare more remotely by using drones and things like that. Well, by, by the way, back when have you ever studied the whole process of aviation becoming part of uh, the United States war arsenal, and specifically the you know when Billy Mitchell was trying to advocate for the use of Vaguely, a little bit. Um, yeah, but even before that, in, in World War One, when biplanes were being used, it was considered by many to be unethical because it was just too easy to go and drop a bomb on somebody. And they'd be like, wait a minute, you're supposed to march here through yeah. all the, you know, you're supposed, you're supposed to go to through all the barbed wire and the stuff that we got in the way. It's It's just not fair for you to fly over us and drop bombs. That's just, you know, come on, play fair type thing. So <clears throat> it's interesting because um, it, there have been times, well, you remember back like in the um, revolutionary war, um, it was very uncommon for surprise attacks to occur. And if, if one, if a raid happened in the middle of the night, it would be, you know, you almost didn't do that because you're afraid that you're going to provoke the other side to, to break the custom of, you know, announcing your, Tomorrow we're gonna, you know, set up our squads <laughs> and shoot at you. We're gonna have a fair fight out on the field. Be ready, you know. Um, but for Run fear that on. the other side would would employ some kind of tactic that just isn't gentlemanly, I suppose. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, anyway, we we do have to take a break, and we'll come back um, and expound on this a bit further. We'll be right back, and we are back with more legal defense. More legal defense. More of it, not less. Hey. But more. <laughs> Wait, there's more. Um, <laughs> hey, I got. I just got to comment on something that uh, for people that are any older than forty probably care about, and that is the passing of Charlie Watts, the heartbeat of the Rolling Stones. And uh, oh yeah, 
and I would say unexpected other than the fact that he was 80 years old. And in the beginning of August, he had uh, some kind of procedure that was a, they were kind of not really commenting on, but interestingly, they, the Rolling Stones announced at about the same time that they were going on another uh, giant tour of the U S and I think uh, Europe after the, you know, going into the fall and they'd already decided that they weren't going to have Charlie play the drums because of his uh, health conditions. So, um, but yeah, he doesn't, passed away. Doesn't that, I mean, just for their brand, that <laughs> doesn't that hurt the mystique? Um, I guess, but you know, they haven't had Bill Wyman playing with them for, you know, 20 years or 15 oh, years. Yeah. like that. So uh, he just got tired of touring and said, you know, you guys go ahead and do what you want. And uh, I think he went to mushroom farming or something like that. And, you know, sheep herding, I don't know. Okay. But uh, anyway, Char- Charlie Watts. Um, and there are those that say, and I, I tend to agree, if not the best drummer in rock and roll, at least, you know, well amongst the most um, respected and, you know, I guess humble is a good way to put it because he never wanted the spotlight. They didn't, you know, he didn't have one of these, he never wanted like a big long drum solo to show off his technical skills. He had them. He's an amazing jazz drummer. Um, He put out, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to 10 uh, albums that were just jazz. And um, I had no idea. Oh yeah. That's really kind of surprised that you know that though. (laughs) But um, you know, he had the chops. It's just that, you know, he, he was just so solid and even uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, when, you know, when asked in the past about, you know, how do you define the Rolling Stones? They both independently said, well, look at Charlie Watts, that he is the Rolling Stones. We, we wouldn't be anything without him. And, you know, you can hear it when you listen to the, it's just that steady, perfectly timed beat every single time with just these nice little fills that are not, they don't blow your mind or anything like that. But he also doesn't, uh, put the drums ahead of everything else like some drummers do. So, um, and you know, one thing about him that was always interesting, they would say, Hey, um, you know, they, they get together, they'd all get on the phone call and they say, how do you feel about going out and playing again this year? And the Rolling Stones are like many groups that had a farewell tour starting, you know, yeah, they'd had like 10, like about 20 years ago. They're like the final tour. And then, you know, they just keeps, they keep having more and more tours. But um, he would say, well, the same thing. Yeah. And I remember him saying once, um, I don't look at it like playing. This is work. This is my job. So (laughs) that's how he approached it is that with the sincerity and the, you know, the dedication where it wasn't about having fun, although he did, but it was more about, um, you know, really applying your, your effort to make it good. Anyway, that was quite a sidetrack. I didn't mean to derail the entire show by doing no um you know it's uh it's it's actually a fascinating discussion about culture because culture matters believe it or not Mm -hmm. we talk about politics talk about the law but culture matters a lot i mean people get consumed by it and they get um, obsessed with it and uh you know and to some people that's hell of a lot more important than who the president is or who some right. senator is, you know, well, you know, um, I'm, they, I'm friends with all kinds of rock and roll people on Facebook. So, you know, past, past few days, it's just been this outpouring of it's the end of the world. Oh my gosh. And, and it's sad, but it's, 
you know, people die. They do. And the, the surprising thing from my perspective is that somehow we've, we've all been wondering who the first Rolling Stone was going to be. And I well, think, of course, everybody thought it would be Keith Richards. Of course, of course. Everybody a, thought Keith would die he's before clearly, David Bowie, Prince, Tom Petty, and you name it, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, speaking of celebrities, um, celebrity lawyer Michael Avenatti is uh was going through i guess his second trial yeah his was this second the wire fraud, trial wire fraud trial i believe um, right because his first one he got convicted and sentenced to 30 months or something like that right uh yeah. for ex- trying to extort the the nike corporation correct yeah so this is like um i guess um cheating clients out of i don't know millions of dollars um and so it was a uh, extortion trial, and he was. Um, it was declared a mistrial because of a Brady violation. Why don't you tell the folks what Brady is? Brady is based on a case called Brady versus Maryland, and um, it was a very important case because it acknowledges the unique role of the prosecution in this so-called criminal justice process. And we all know, knew this to be the case at, before Brady, which, um, you know, well, <laughs> it precedes uh, either of us going on. What year was Brady anyway? It was 1963. very 1963. So it precedes my birth and probably around the time you were born. Um, I was one. Yep. <laughs> you were one year old. So you were one years old. Um, yep. But I remember but, reading about it even as a one year old. Yeah. It came out and you're like, wow, that's huge. Wow. But uh, we call it the Brady Rule. And what it is is that the prosecution has an undeniably uh, close affiliation with the law enforcement side of any dispute because essentially uh, cops, detectives, etc., generate the evidence and provide it to the district attorney, the district attorney or U.S. attorney or whomever is responsible for bringing the actual case to trial. Um, so the lawyers who are supposed to be trained in number one, recognizing, uh, what evidence can and should be presented, but also because of the fact that they have a unique position different than the defense, they have access to those same investigators and also have the ability to expand an investigation to get into, to gather facts that may actually be helpful for the defense. On top of that, we've talked about this many times on the show, but there is a specific ethical requirement on prosecutors, and the way it's worded is that they are to seek justice, not just a conviction. So whereas a defense lawyer's obligation is to the client and the client only, where which because in the from the defense side of things, we have several pl- privileges that are part of that those rights. So, you know, the right to remain silent, the right to cross-examine witnesses and so forth. They're all designed to provide a defendant a theoretically fair trial. The prosecution, on the other hand, um, the job is not always supposed to be to win the case. It's supposed to be to seek a just outcome. So that combined with the fact that they're the ones that have the ability to send out investigators to either gather more information or to preserve information that the defense could find useful or even exculpatory. It is, um, uh, it's part of their responsibility to make sure that the defense is provided uh, anything that could be helpful. Now, Brady was just the beginning of it because it went on 
what was it, Kyle's versus Whitley, another case that talked about right. um, that obligation is not just we'll give you what we have in that regard, but also to, you know, direct uh, further investigation into matters that could logically. Well, also to also to reach out to other agencies. So they might say, oh, well, well, we didn't have that in our possession. You know, the police have that or this other agency has that. Well, Kyle's. Right. Kyle says, um, okay, well, you have a duty, prosecutors, yeah. to go get that. And, and part of it is recognizing the fact that, and this is great, that you know our Supreme Court actually took this matter seriously. The reality is that when a prosecutor picks up the phone and they say, hey, detective, I need you to go out and track down evidence that could be exculpatory because it looks like there might be something out there, um, is a big difference between that phone call and a defense lawyer saying, hey, Detective Shlomo, I would like to have you do some more investigation. They'd be like, no, sorry. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, you would think that it should work both ways, but it clearly doesn't. Um, so what happened with the Avenetti case? And for heaven's sake, this just happened in as many months. This has happened to you and I uh, like two times just in very recent history where the prosecution at the very last minute provides something that, you know, they, they figured out was exculpatory or potentially useful to the defense. And then the issue becomes the timing of that disclosure, because it's not just that they tell you about it. It's that you have to have an opportunity to research, do your own investigation, make, you know, subpoena witnesses and so on. But it's happened to you and I just, as I said, very recently where it was mm -hmm. after the 11th hour where this, these types of disclosures were made, <clears throat> Dude, I just rambled on and on. Now we got, <clears throat> we got to go. So sorry. <laughs> oh, no. Well, you know, we should pick this su subject up another time because uh, okay. it's important yeah, it's, and it's, it's important to explore and, uh, um, and understand. So it's very, anyways, deep, well, too. have a great weekend, everyone. <laughs> All right. Tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. You can also catch us on the interwebs if you wish. This the has been with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. <laughs>